Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're coming at you with a listener mail episode today, but we're broadcasting from the depths. We're down here in a, in a nuclear submarine, it happens, because uh, apparently Submarine Command has appropriated our mailbot carney. Yeah, yeah. We, we call it Deep Star 7. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's where we're hanging out for this episode. Yeah, Carney's been working down here in the deep, in the shadowy depths, uh, which is which is perfect because some of the listener mail that we're going to be reading here today does relate to our recent episode on uh, the uh, on, on, on studies related to to sleep and even dreaming uh, within the confines of a of a, of a nuclear ballistic missile submarine. Now, as always, we've got to say that we don't have time to respond to or read on the podcast all of the great listener mail we get. Uh, just rest assured, we we do try to read it all, mm-hmm. uh, and so so thank you so much for sending it. But today, you're going to get a selection of some of the stuff we've gotten since the last episode the last listener mail episode uh, concerning all kinds of things concerning quantum immortality, uh, submarines, and the alphabet and the goddess and all kinds of good stuff. But maybe we should start with some of the responses to the alphabet and the goddess episodes. Yeah, we, we heard from a number of people about uh, about this one, uh, you know, in, in part because it, it does have a lot of really thought-provoking ideas in it. But then also uh, th- there are some issues with, with, uh, with some of the uh, the main pieces that Schlein uh, was was utilizing in the work. Yeah, so if you'll recall, we, we did a couple episodes on this book, The Alphabet and the Goddess by Leonard Schlein. Uh, it was a book from the late 90s that made this sort of historical neuroscience argument that the rise of patriarchy and the decline or the relative decline of the power of goddesses and religious pantheons around the world was somehow correlated with the rise of alphabetic writing. And mm-hmm. he makes a lot of arguments based Based on uh, hemispheric lateralization of the brain, and uh, and how that is, how that's correlated with gender roles, and how that's correlated with alphabetic writing, and so we discussed in the original episode that we were do- that we were doing the topic because we thought it was kind of thought provoking and raised good questions, not because we were endorsing it as correct. Right, and I, I think it also within the, the context of the episode, we we discussed some of the areas where I where I think his argument was a bit weak. Such as uh, when it comes to uh, uh, Chinese writing uh, or the Hindu pantheon. Well, and just generally the idea that that I got the feeling we might be dealing with some historical cherry picking yeah. in his arguments so that he was, you know, sort of uh, selectively emphasizing the characteristics of societies or parts of societies that helped his argument and, and not necessarily always giving the most balanced reading of things. Yeah. Now, those were the kinds of uh, concerns we raised in the original episode. I will say actually since then, I think I've – I've become even more skeptical of his argument because I've I've started to wonder if not just his argument about the explanation for the rise of patriarchy is is flawed, but I wonder if some of his underlying assumptions are flawed too. Like I, I think in the future, especially based on some uh, some feedback we got after the episode, that we should do an episode on the future questioning what the uh, what the gender roles of prehistoric societies actually were. Like what is the evidence from anthropology and archaeology? and everything um, about how gender dynamics work in prehistoric societies. Yeah, yeah, I would love to examine that, particularly when you get in, 
not only uh, you know what we can tell about ancient uh, humans, but also ancient Neanderthals. Uh, you know, what exactly was the dynamic, and what is the what is the relation between that ancient dynamic and and the place we are today? Yeah, so that's an episode for the near future. Mm-hmm. But today we did want to review some of the most interesting listener mail that we got in response to the Alphabet and the Goddess episode. So, uh, Robert, you want to jump in with the first one? Sure. This one comes to us from Amelia. Amelia writes, I just started listening to the podcast a couple of months ago, and I've been loving it. I was especially excited when I saw the episode for The Alphabet and the Goddess. The transition from matriarchal to patriarchal religions in the ancient world has always was always a topic that interested me in college. I studied classical studies as a minor with a concentration on ancient Greece. I was interested to see if you would discuss a Minoan and Mycenaean culture in ancient Greece and a change in religious symbols as a part of the discussion. Since it wasn't part of the discussion, I thought I'd write in and tell you a little of what I know. The Minoans were a seafaring civilization on Crete uh, in the Bronze Age, most famously known for its relation to King Minos and the Minotaur myths. Yeah. Yeah. Man, Uh, Minotaur is one of my favorite monsters. I feel like one of the most underutilized monsters. They are. They're, they are tremendous, and I, I love it when somebody gets them right. The, yeah. old, the old Jim Henson Storyteller mm-hmm. series did a pretty good job with the Minotaur. Um, uh, of course, House of Leaves, uh, oh, the, yeah. the, the horror novel, well, we'll just say book, yeah. uh, d- does a fabulous job with the Minotaur. And uh, the Dungeons & Dragons treatment of Minotaurs is actually pretty good. Oh, they're not just like some brute that's going to throw you around? Well, they are a brute that will throw you around, but they have a pretty high wisdom. Oh, okay. And they can't become lost in a, a maze. Oh, I like that. But sorry, uh, we should go on with oh, yes. Amelia's email. So after mentioning uh, the, the Minoans being related to King Minos and uh, Minotaur myths. Yes, she continues, quote, It is thought that the snake was used as a symbol of fertility or rebirth similar to other cultures in the Middle East. So we think there was some quote-unquote mother goddess aspect to Minoan religion and culture. As the Bronze Age progressed, the Mycenaeans settled on the mainland. They were a more patriarchal and militaristic people. They lived in citadels, in the mountains, and depicted soldiers in their art. Their culture can represent the invasion of the male sky god and establish ancient earth goddess religions as Indo-Europeans move south. Eventually, the Minoan culture collapsed and Mycenaean culture survived to influence the later classical Greek periods. I think the most interesting thing to me about this transition is the change in symbology that makes it to present day. We can look over time and see the snake turn from this worshipped symbol of fertility and earth to this hated symbol of trickery and evil. We see in the Bible that the snake is the tempter and the devil in the Garden of Eden. Medusa, a generally evil character in Greek myth, has hair of snakes. Could this be the patriarchal culture's way of displacing matriarchal religious symbols, anti-snake propaganda in religious stories? <laughs> it's something to think about. The Minoan and Mycenaean periods are just a place in history to study that transition. Looking at the two cultures' writing systems, Minoans used a yet-to-be-deciphered writing system called Linear A, while the Mycenaeans use Linear B, which is mostly uh, deciphered. Linear B uses a combination of syllabic and ideographic characters. It is thought Linear A is similar. I'm not sure if that muddies the waters of the argument you presented in the series of episodes, but I agree that the premise uses a lot of generalizations to try and make a point. I just thought I'd share this lesser-known slice of history. The Minoans are a particularly interesting people, and I I think uh, they don't get enough attention, so I like to talk about them when I can. Keep up the great work, guys. 
Well, that's a great email. Thank you, Amelia. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think the Minoans are interesting and we, we should do more to study that. One of the things that comes up here is uh, something I guess we got at a minute ago, the question of actually how female-friendly these earlier, lesser understood cultures actually were. Uh, now, one of the types of feedback we got from some classic scholars after the episode was like undermining the idea that there's this popular idea that there was this sort of universal worldwide matriarch goddess-based culture before there was uh, before there was civilization and before there was written history. And there's a lot of evidence that that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Now, the question might be, was the pre-literate, pre-civilization society more female-friendly or more matriarchal, but maybe not uh, actually matriarchal? Yeah, like I, I don't even think Schlein made the argument, at least in that, in the book we discussed, that, that culture was ever largely matriarchal. Right. Uh, it's just a question of was it more uh, balanced at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that is certainly an area of discussion. You know, another thing that came that, 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 come, that came to mind uh, in, you know, when I was reading that and, and keeps coming back now is, a, is that regardless of what the previous gods or goddesses were, uh, there's always this, it seems like there's this, uh, there's this movement to repackage them, yeah. Uh, sometimes as lesser deities or as just outright demons, yeah. And you have to ask yourself, well, is this always, uh, you know, to what ex- extent gender is playing a role into this transformation, or is it a transformation that is, uh, in in many areas, uh, removed from gender concerns? Uh, you know, the various pagan gods that were reduced to demons uh, in the advent of Christianity, etc. Yeah, I mean, and you wonder about the idea of if there are gender correlations with the history of the understanding of snakes Mm -hmm. in – in, in religion because uh, Amelia brings up the Garden of Eden story. You know, one of the funny things about the Garden of Eden story, mm-hmm. do you know it never says the snake is Satan? Oh, yeah. That's not in the huh. story. It's just the snake. It's just the snake comes to Eve, the woman, and tempts her with knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do know, the, of course, that uh, when you look at the Bible, Old and New Testament, the, the devil is kind of this character where it's, it's almost like somebody wrote a really confusing screenplay. Uh-huh. And then someone said, God, we have a, a number of these antagonists. Can we just combine these into one character? Because it's confusing to have a snake. And then there's this uh, this Satan character that's like a, a court official. And then there's this idea of a fallen angel and, a, and, a, and another devil. Just let's make them all the same guy. Yeah. I mean, it really does make you wonder, though, if the snake is in the Garden of Eden story a sort of reflection of an earlier story tradition where the snake is something more like a Prometheus character, mm-hmm. a character that brings knowledge to the humans and that that character is transformed into a villain in later versions of the story. Now, she also mentioned Medusa here. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love to do some sort of um, – um, a deeper dive on Medusa in the future. Because on one hand, always one of my favorite monsters. Uh-huh. But it wasn't until I was really an adult that I began to notice just this trend in art and, uh, and you know, particularly with statues. Uh, there's one statue in particular. I don't remember the, the sculptor's name, but you, you find it uh, at, at the, the Met in, in New York City mm-hmm. uh, where um, uh, our hero is holding the decapitated head of Medusa aloft. Uh, and there are various paintings uh, where uh, where he's in the act of slaying her, and there's like a really kind of icky, violent vibe to those images. You know, the yeah. the, the murder of this uh, this this feminine uh, monster, this well, yeah. monstrous female. Well, this this attack on this primordially ugly woman. Yeah, yeah. It 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 doesn't sit well with me. Uh, yeah. 
I, I like the scenes where Medusa is dishing out death a lot more. Well, as beautiful as mythology can be, it's also something we should keep in mind. I mean, it, cultural values are encoded in myths, and a lot of cultures have had lots of strains of deep, powerful misogyny running through them, and that's mm-hmm. there in a lot of the myths, too. Now, I do want to point out one more tidbit from the the Alphabet and the Goddess episode. Uh, I, may, I referenced a, a, a particular paper by Laura Slatkin titled uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, ra- it was the Rage or the Wrath of Thetis. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually has a, a book that came out years and years ago titled The Power of Thetis and Selected Essays, if anyone uh, is interested to read more of her writings. Hmm. All right. Well, what else do we have, Carney? All right. Well, this next one is also about the alphabet and the goddess, and this is from our listener, Hend. And so she writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I was listening to the second part of the goddess versus alphabet episode, and the Sparta-Athens comparison struck me as either too good to be true or contrived. Now, we actually asked about that. We were like, I I wonder to what extent Schlein is cherry-picking his argument here. And we asked for, you know, if you're a classic scholar Mm -hmm. out there if you're or an ancient Greek historian, uh, you know, how does his argument strike you? And basically his argument was that Spartan society placed far, far less emphasis on the written word and at the same time – was more friendly to women's rights and women's empowerment than Athenian society was. And Athenian society was highly litigious, highly literate, highly written word oriented. Yeah, it was an interesting argument, but I think at the same time we were we were both a, l- a little cautious with it yeah. <laughs> at the time. Uh, so this is what Hind is getting back to us with. Uh, so Hind says, first of all, uh, I don't think there's much validity to the left brain, right brain argument. Besides interesting oddities to do with split brain patients, have you guys done an episode on that? I emailed one of my former professors who is a professor of classics about this, and this is what he said. Quote, I'm always a little wary about big left slash right brain arguments since I doubt the brain functions so simplistically, but what do I know? As for Spartan illiteracy, I think that is not so established. It is true that women had a lot more power over some things in Sparta, but I don't think the larger argument stands up since I don't think it has much to do with literacy. Most of the Spartan and Athenian institutions regarding women were set during a time when both were mostly oral cultures. And then she provides a link to an article, which I must say I haven't had time to read yet, but I I would like to look into. Uh, So I I appreciate that bit of feedback. That's an interesting point. So this could be a way that Schlein might not only be cherry picking, but might be like acknowledging differences that are sort of irrelevant because the practices he's pointing to were established before the written word was important in either culture. Hmm. That's a good point. Now, to come back to the left brain, right brain thing, I think that that's something – That's something that's important to strike a good balance on because you can absolutely uh, go overboard with the left brain, right brain kind of thing. At the same time, I think hemispheric lateralization is an important feature of the human brain. Now, there – I think there are a lot of arguments, especially in the later 20th century – that that overinterpreted the influence of of the left brain right brain division, but the left brain right brain division is a real thing, and it does have consequences. You just don't want to be overly general, overly simplistic about the power of it in explaining behavior. Yeah, and and I mean similar things go for a lot of the research that has gone into the inner workings of of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, going from the idea that there is say a, a pleasure center 
or a pain center of the brain to a, a more nuanced understanding that, well, it's not a center so much as a network. Yeah. I mean, neuroscience is one of those things that's just not very friendly to amateur interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it's something I mean, neither of us are neuroscientists. So we have to do our best to just sort through the science and what people have written about it and try to make sense of it. But, you know, neuroscience is one of those things where it's almost never as simple as that headline you read. It's true. I get a kick out of uh, a juicy neuroscience clickbait headline almost as as much as the black hole headlines. You always see something that's like, you know, brain's God worship center activates (laughs) when you view pizza or something. (laughs) You know, you see those kind of studies and it's like that that can sort of convey something that's kind of true, but it's not going to be really that simple. Right. So anyway, Hind, I think those are very good concerns to raise. All right, here's another one. Uh, this one comes to us uh, from Matia. And this one concerns our, I believe, our, our Fartonomicon episode. Oh, yeah. Hi, Robert and Joe. First time email writer here, long time listener. In your most recent mailbag episode, that would have been, I guess, the one before this, you talked about Pythagoras and his comments on fava beans. Nice. I never thought. Do of, not eat beans. <laughs> that's right. Because that was basically his whole deal. Is he hated beans and said you should not eat them. <laughs> it's not his whole deal. Well, Come not on. his whole deal, obviously. <laughs> but it was. It seemed to be of some importance to yeah. him. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, she continues, I never thought about the connection between the Greek uh, pneuma and flatulence. It makes a lot of sense and adds a lot to Pythagoras's maniacal sect. How- now, uh, just to refresh, sorry, the idea of the connection between the pneuma and flatulence is that pneuma usually means breath. It's also, funny enough, the word for like spirit or ghost. So you'd mm-hmm. have like the Holy Spirit being a pneuma, and then you could breathe out a pneuma, but then also what would be another kind of pneuma? Well, but Pythagoras is, is arguing here that you could essentially fart out your own soul. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the, the basic idea as I interpret it. Uh, she continues, however, there is a, a more widespread explanation for Pythagoras's take on fava beans. A common mutation among Mediterranean people is G6PD deficiency, which causes severe anemia upon exposure to certain compounds, including anti-malarial drugs, the antibiotic Bactrim, and guess what? Fava beans. Oh, no. The condition is commonly known as favism because of this effect. Ever the flamboyant explainer, Pythagoras observed this condition and prohibited his followers from eating these beans, which were said to contain the soul of the dead. <laughs> Keep up the great work. There is no podcast like yours. The soul of the dead in beans. Yeah. I didn't I didn't make it to that part. So huh. uh well, thank you. Know, you. My my son is distrustful of beans. Uh, really? Yeah. And uh, and maybe why? that's why he he knows deep down that they may contain the souls of the dead. Have they wronged him? No, he just— Did they betrayed him? He just—sometimes it's hard to get him excited about beans. I don't know why. For for a kid who has, has sworn off most meats, uh, it would benefit him tremendously to be just all in on beans. But uh, it, it, it's been an uphill battle. You know, you, you say he's into shellfish, though, right? Oh, yes. Shell, shellfish and beans don't really go together. It's true. Maybe that's it. He, he, deep down, he knows that his favorite— uh, his favorite foods don't really work that well with that. But, I, you know, on the other hand, I have had some wonderful, uh, like, shrimp dishes that I think incorporate some forms of beans. So. Oh, yeah. I guess 
guess now that I think about it. I mean, not kidney beans, obviously, but, you know. Not fava beans. Yeah, not fava beans. We all know that fava beans go best with human liver mm-hmm. and Chianti. But, but, but uh, you know, hilarity aside, uh, this is an interesting argument, the idea that there could be something else at play here besides just mere superstition and fart aversion. Right. Hey, speaking of goddesses, we've got an email from Athena. Oh. At least that's her name. It's from Athena on uh, on Piss Myers. You remember oh, yes. Crazy Ants and when we, uh, we discovered the meaning of Piss Myers? Uh, so, yeah, Athena writes, Hi, I've been listening to your show for a little while and I enjoy it. I was listening to your show on Crazy Ants and it's a topic very familiar having grown up in Texas. When you mentioned Piss Myers, I had to write in. My mother used that term to describe a specific ant that was around our home in South Texas, Victoria. They indeed smelled like their name suggests. A single ant didn't smell. But the Ant Hill sure did. Hmm. On a side note, if I or my siblings were misbehaving, she would call us Piss Myers. <laughs> well, that, well, that's great. We got to hear a little, uh, little, little, little field wisdom on the Piss Myers here. Now, I wonder if the ant doesn't smell like the name suggests, but the ant mound does. Why is that? Is it just because a single ant doesn't put off enough for us to detect and you've got to have a lot of them in a close proximity? Or is it because, I don't know, of something else, something else in the mound? Do they secrete stuff in the mound? Yeah, I guess without actually looking into it, uh, my 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 guess would be uh, the, the former, that it's just the, the fact that you have so many ants in one area at a time that it's going to you know, create a stronger aroma because these are not like leaf cutter ants. They're not cultivating anything in there. Yeah. So. Anyway, I admire the harshness of your mother, by the way. I (laughs) I think that's good. I mean, normally you just call your kid, you say you're being a brat or you're Mm -hmm. being a baby or something. But now you're saying like you're being a eusocial insect that produces urine-like smells. (laughs) Well, that's kind of like children, uh, except for the you show, the you social part. They do produce uh, the, the smell of urine sometimes, and that can't be helped. Maybe we should take a break. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're still on the bottom of the ocean. We're still trapped in the submarine with Carney, and he is dishing out some listener mail uh, for us to read. So are you ready for this epic email we got from Jesser? Uh, let's have it, yeah. Now, Jesser is a pseudonym, and I don't know their pronouns, so I'm just going to go with they. Uh, So Jesser writes in to say, Hey, guys, since you were talking about sci-fi stories with a focus on Venus, I thought you might like to know about the book Radiance by Catherine M. Valente. It's an Art Deco-styled sci-fi novel set in a world where early 20th century depictions of space travel were true, and you really can shoot yourself in a bullet to the moon. It's also about the history of movie making in a way, and one of the main conflicts is a documentary that went awry on the surface of Venus. It's a really interesting book because it takes a non-linear epistolary approach to telling its story. You know, in a way, you could look at the Soviet Venera Landers as a documentary that went awry on the surface of <laughs> yes, Venus. Yeah. But also, Dieser continues, I also recently listened to the episodes on the bicameral mind, and it brought to mind one particularly old text I studied in school called The Instruction of Ani. It comes from about 1400 to 1200 BCE, sometime during the 18th dynasty of Egypt, and it's a moral code written in the form of advice from father to son. It came to mind particularly because it's both quite old and because it has a number of things you wouldn't expect to hear from a bicamerally minded people. In 
instructions against lying and being sneaky, for instance. It even ends with what's basically a debate between the son and the father about why the instructions should be followed, though Julian James would probably just say maybe Egyptians lost bicameralism early. Uh, maybe, or uh, I don't know. I, I could look at that and say, okay, I, I already don't agree that the bicameral mind is correct, despite how interesting it is, but I, that could be a good piece of evidence against it. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it yeah, it kind of depends where you how you want to cherry pick it. Really, <laughs> um, uh, I, I do like the the the, uh, the idea that that yeah, Jane's might have have argued that well, this is this is a case of uh, of by of, of the modern mind uh, emerging early on uh, in one of our most ancient uh, civilizations. But uh, but who knows? Yeah. In, in his defense, I think he would say that, you know, the process was gradual and it happened yeah. at different places and not not all exactly at the same time. But then again, you could look at that as a weakness of the hypothesis, because if, if, if a hypothesis is too accommodating, you know, if you're mm -hmm. shaping it to accommodate too many different kinds of evidence, that's often a sign that you're, you're you know, you're, you're, you're trying to cover your butt, really. Right. And yeah, you get into this area where, OK, am I talking about a, a, a an actual hypothesis? Hypothesis at this point, or am I talking about something that is ultimately more philosophic or even religious in form? Uh, and I think there there are value in those things as well. I've, I've said before, I, I I feel like my fascination with bicameral mind at times fulfills the needs of religion uh, for me personally. You know, and <laughs> it's it, like a uh, almost like a novel you love or something. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it it fills in some of the sort of I guess, uh, teleological uh, holes in my understanding of, of humans. But, but anyway, I, the, the idea of like a, a father and, uh, and son having this conversation, I, I do like the idea of a, a father saying, look, son, all these other people are, are not exactly like us. <laughs> uh, you're going to be tempted to lie to these pea zombies because they're going to believe you. Uh, but we we just can't live like that, you know. Uh -huh. Having that sort of a conversation. Oh man! Uh, imagining what it is like to to be uh, a, a modern human among bicameral humans. Um, that's one of the the issues that uh, Terrence Hawkins got into in um, in his book uh, The Rage of Achilles. Oh yeah, yeah. I still mean to read that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite good. Uh, I'll probably go into depth uh, more about that uh, in our upcoming uh, summer reading episode. All right, so we should go on with Jesser's email. So Jesser says, regarding the recent episode on the relationship between gender roles and language, and that would be on the uh, alphabet versus the goddess episode, I actually took a class on gender roles in the ancient world in college. The theory of the origin of gender roles I learned there had to do with the division of labor in hunter-gatherer societies. So that's somewhat along the same mm -hmm. lines as, as Schlein's ideas. In hunter-gatherer societies in the modern era, it seems like the profitability of hunting versus gathering roughly determines the relative balance of male versus female power. If there's little vegetation to be found, hunting is more important and men have more power. Vice versa, if there's little game and in places where both are abundant, roles are roughly equal. Assuming that the same held true in ancient hunter-gatherer societies, you can construct a rough conceptual history where women would have been the first to develop agriculture 
agriculture since they spent more time with plants, while men would have been the first to develop animal husbandry since they spent more time with animals. The fact that you can use animals to massively simplify agriculture could suggest that that's where the shift to male-dominated societies came from. The men who could harness the most animal power to produce the most surplus crops would be able to leverage that to gain political power. Of course, this is only one theory, and any one theory may not be broadly applicable considering in how many places the patriarchal sedentary societies emerged, but it's interesting to consider the ramifications of an early sex-based division of labor. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting possibility. Maybe worth more of a look and to see what the evidence is. Yeah, of course, uh, it makes me think a lot about the, the domestication of animals and, you know, sort of an animal-by-animal animal breakdown about how it occurred. You know, it's like, for instance, the, the dog and cat model that uh, I've seen presented sometimes where they essentially wander up to the campfire or the, the, ha- the habitat. Yeah. In these cases, it seems like it would be the non-hunters who would be uh, – sort of on point for domestication. Yeah. Uh, where, of course, it would be, it would probably be different if it was, you know, if you're talking about some sort of a, an ancient cow or a rock. Well, yeah, if you're talking about animals that aid in agricultural production, you'd be talking about like large draft animals. Well, or pigs. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's worth looking into. Yeah. Or stegosauruses, of course. Right, <laughs> yeah. Cambodian model. Uh, yeah. That's, I'm not serious with that, by the way. But, uh, but no, no we're, these are we're, valid we're advocating Flintstonesism here from now on. <laughs> yes, think to the Flintstones. They so many different domestic roles for the animals. How did that happen? Uh, we, we need a strong uh, hypothesis for that as well. Okay, Desser has some more interesting stuff. So Desser says, also, since I'm an Egyptologist, first mention of this, by the way, but <laughs> Desser is an Egyptologist apparently, uh, I've had a couple facts come to mind as I've listened to various episodes that might be interesting. First of all, in comparison to other religions, ancient Egyptian religion has an interesting inversion from the standard notion of sky father and earth mother as primordial gods. Now, we mentioned a lot of religions have that. And Yeser gives some examples, e.g. Gaia and Uranus in Greek myth, uh, Ranganui and Papatuanuku in Maori myth. Uh, but anyway, continues saying that Egyptian religion had a sky mother, Newt. She even births the sun god every morning and an earth father, Geb. Okay, next point Desser makes. Egyptian religion has a couple of creation myths. As far as scholars can tell, this was not really a problem to ancient Egyptian priests. They have some similarities, often involving some sort of primordial mound and some act of self-creation to start the cosmos, but they involve wildly different sets of gods and varied between regions, yet there never seems to be any effort to unify or standardize the mythology. I think that's kind of interesting, like a lack of uh, the canon impulse. Yeah, the the cinematic universe impulse. Right. (laughs) Uh, Next point. Part of the purpose behind the creation of mummies was basically to turn the body into a statue. The opening of the mouth rituals used to turn the mummy into a ritually charged object that the— that the deceased person's spirit could inhabit are similar to the rituals used for cult statues for temples of the gods, which were similarly meant to enable the gods to inhabit the statues and to consume offerings. 
Egyptians had some interesting views on gender relations. For example, they thought that in terms of reproduction, women were basically empty vessels and that men provided all the important elements. This is not a unique view of that. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it ends up being reflected uh, in the, the spermist that, right. we, that we discussed uh, in, in uh, a fairly recent episode. It's kind of not surprising that throughout history, a lot of men have decided that, oh, it's men who are actually the, the, the only important part. Yeah. But Desser continues, while that sounds rough on women, it meant women were never really blamed for not being able to bear children. It was entirely the man's fault. That's interesting. They were also pretty relaxed about marriage too. Premarital sex seems not to have been a big deal and marriage itself was more of a legal slash economic arrangement than a religious one. Women could even initiate a divorce if they wanted to. This is more a recommendation, but the book The Woman Who Would Be King, which is a biography of Hatshepsut's life by Professor Kara Cooney, has a really good scholarly exploration of Egyptian society. That sounds huh. like a good read. Yeah. Lastly, I thought the story of Inigaldi Nana would be your sort of thing. Essentially, archaeologists were excavating a palace during the Neo-Babylonian Empire when they came across a bunch of artifacts from different places in much earlier times, all collected in one part of the palace. It turns out they'd stumbled onto a museum of artifacts from earlier Mesopotamian civilizations curated by the Neo-Babylonian princess Inigaldi Nana, complete with cuneiform seals for each artifact like modern museum labels. Also, her museum dates to about 100 years before Herodotus, quote, invented the study of history, goes to show you what good publicity can do. <laughs> uh, and then Jesser apologizes for the length of all this, uh, says they wanted to keep adding one more interesting idea before sending off. Uh, thank you so much for this email. This is great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they, they, were, they really managed to pack a lot in here. All right. This one comes to us from Nile. Hi, Niall from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Really enjoy the show's first time writing. When you were talking about life on a nuclear submarine, it reminded me of, of when I worked for Xerox in Los Angeles. I asked my district manager, what was the weirdest service call you ever did? He said he installed a Xerox 1090 copier on a nuclear submarine. <laughs> Why do you need to make copies on a submarine? Uh, I th well, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Uh, so he had to take it apart and cut the frame with a torch to get it through the doors, <laughs> weld it back together, and get it functioning. If you look it up, you will see that it is a very large copier. I asked him why on earth would they want such a, such a huge copier in a nuclear submarine. He said, are you kidding? You have to have a form to, in triplicate to take a dump in the Navy. Uh, it makes me think that the modern-day nuclear submarine is a lot roomier than we might think. <laughs> As for the focusing of the eyes in the confined environment, once I was picking a friend up from prison, which tells you the kind of friends I have, uh, he had been in a small confined room for six months. And when he got in my car in New Mexico with vast landscapes, the first thing he talked about was the focusing of his eyes on the distant horizon. It really freaked him out, and he had a hard time adjusting. Thanks for everything you do. Keep up the good work. Ooh, wow. That, that's kind of scary to hear there at the end. It makes me think uh, prisoners should definitely be given windows, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, also, we've, we've discussed on the show before just how horrible solitary confinement is yeah. as a form of, uh, of essentially I mean, neurological torture. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it does a lot of terrible things to the mind uh, and we didn't but I don't think we even really got into uh, what it might do to your your visual perception 
But mainly, I just love the idea of a giant Xerox machine uh-huh. <laughs> cut apart and then reassembled aboard a nuclear submarine just for bureaucratic purposes. I looked it up. It looks kind of like a sideways refrigerator with some little like droid embellishments. Yeah. It's a cross between a sideways refrigerator and an R2-D2. It's, we really need more Xeroxes in our, especially our sci-fi underwater environments. Uh-huh. Like when I think back on The Abyss or Leviathan, Deep Star 6, what these films really lacked <laughs> was, was a proper Xerox uh, scene. You yeah, know? They, they're, they're making copies. Yeah, yeah. six-pack from Leviathan, making copies. That would have been perfect. Oh, he'd be the kind of guy who would uh, Xerox his own posterior. Oh, yeah. I mean— yeah, there has to be a deleted scene now that I think about it. You know, I must say, Carney is very excited now that we're getting to the email about submarines. He must be really enjoying his new job. Well, yeah, and I mean, he's a little lonely down here, so he could use a Xerox machine to hang out with. Oh, as a friend, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it looks like he is excitedly giving us more submarine-related email. Yes. In fact, this one, this next one comes to us uh, from an old friend, frequent, uh, long, long-time uh, listener mail participant, uh, Jim. Jim in New Jersey. He, yeah. Man, he writes some great emails, and this is another good one. Jim writes, Robert and Joe, I've seen Das Boot twice <laughs> and been on a German U-boat twice too, ah. but only in a museum. The U.S. Navy captured German U-boat U-505 during World War II. It's a museum attraction at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Oh, I wish I'd been to that last time we were in Chicago. I'd like to go sometime. Yeah, well, the next time. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Jim continues, I haven't seen the movie or been to the museum in years, but from what I recall, I visited the museum in two successive summers and saw the movie in between those two visits. Well, so you watch it twice in a year. This is kind of obsessive behavior, Jim. What's going on? It's a great film. Das Boot. (laughs) It's it's, it's not like seeing Deep Star 6 twice in the same year. (laughs) Jim writes, my memory is that the movie set matched the sub very well. The movie features several scenes at the captain's office, his bunk and the officer's mess. Uh, These are all the same small part of the sub, which is not obvious from initial viewing in the movie, but more apparent once you see slash know it. The space isn't much more than a nook along the sub's main passageway where there's a small bunk for the captain. There's a small table next to it. I can't remember if it's bolted down or whether it flips down like a Murphy bed. The captain is sitting on his bunk while in his, quote, office. Several officers are sitting on the bunk during meals, too. I wonder if that would mess with you psychologically, like if you had to conduct your official managerial duties in your office from your bed. Well, certainly, I guess if it's if it's slightly transformed, it might be a little different. But, yeah, meetings meetings on beds are always weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, but we—I say that we've had a few of these uh, when we're on uh, on trips doing live shows. Oh God, you're right. Yeah, yeah it's it, always weird. Yeah, you, you don't really have a. We, we never have like a conference room to go to. I guess right. it's like a business area in most hotels. But if we're like running through the presentation, yeah, it generally ends up like two or three of us sitting on one of uh, the beds that we're uh, in the room that we're staying in. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, Robert, come sit on my bed. Let's talk about H. H. Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, next time you're in a tense meeting with your manager, just imagine they're sitting on their bed, and I'm sure that'll undercut it. Anyway, getting back to this. The tour, when I was on it, consisted of walking through the three middle sections of the sub, and you can look into the fore and aft sections, too. Holes had been cut into the hull, so you don't need to go up and down ladders. We could look up into the conning tower, too. It didn't feel too cramped until we were told it was 60 men for 90 days with one toilet. Oh, wow. 
Technically, there were two toilets, but one was a food storage locker when they first left port. (laughs) There was one fairly small stove right across from the captain's nook. The cook had to produce 180 meals a day from it. I I like how the second toilet is sort of like an achievement that they unlock. Right. uh, Just through eating food. Like eventually they they come to that point where it's like, congratulations. Survive this long and you get another toilet. We have a second toilet. Oh, and and I guess— Was it incentive structures? (laughs) Maybe. uh, But you know the captain pulled weight on that. It was like, oh, the the new toilet's available? Well, I'm up because I've been been waiting days for this. (laughs) That's my office now. (laughs) Is it weirder to to conduct meetings from a bed or from a toilet? Uh, From a toilet, certainly. (laughs) Yeah. Like even if you're not actually like using the toilet, if you're just setting up on it as if it were a chair, uh, then it's got to be a little strange. Jim continues, the German Navy had a requirement that their boats had to go from surface to periscope level in under a minute. This was to hide from patrols. They would often drill this, and they do it in the movie. One of my favorite scenes, as the dive alarm sounds, the off-duty seamen run to the front of the boat, becoming human ballast to help the nose of the sub dive underwater faster. Oh, yeah. That is is messed up. (laughs) You shouldn't be using the – oh, my God. No, I mean it drives home the the extreme environment and the you know the the limits of the technology. Yeah. I mean it makes me think of like those uh stunt car scenes in movies where somebody gets the car up on two wheels by like turning and leaning real hard. Yeah, generally we just want to be passengers in our vehicles and not some component in its uh functionality. Right. It's like imagine next time you're on an airplane and the the captain's like, "All right, we need to get ready for landing. So everybody please move up to the front of the plane." Yes. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. All right, this one comes to us from William. William writes, Thanks for the podcast. Makes my long bus commute more bearable. Two things related to the sleep and creativity podcast. First of all, you mentioned a future for hotels where they may be able to teach languages, etc. while you're asleep. Maybe I'm just cynical, but I suspect the more likely use will be advertising. Yep, yep, yep. Think of the money they could make selling dream space to advertisers. That's a thing in Futurama, isn't it? It is. There's a scene where where Fry is first subjected to advertising in his dream, and he's— He's, he's outraged over it. He says, you know, back in my day, we only had advertisements like on the street, on TV, and in the sky, but never in our dreams. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, I think it's perfect. Doesn't he like he has the he's at school in his underwear dream, but yes. then it's like very stylish underwear and it's trying to sell him <laughs> on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Futurama touched on it. This listener mail touches on it as well, that if we open up a new place in our experience of reality where advertising could potentially grow, then we will find a way to grow it there. He continues, I have four kids, and before they were born, I very rarely had bad dreams. But at least once for each of them, I've dreamt about something horrible and tragic happening to them. I wonder if it stems from anxiety about their well-being or a way of my mind trying to identify the best way to protect them. Creativity and parenting, perhaps. Could dreaming be a survival mechanism in which one's mind draws on extreme scenarios for things that could happen in everyday life and create ways to address them? Like, did ancient people dream of creative ways to hunt? Or what to do if the mammoth suddenly turns on them? The person who dreamed of of a solution got away while the one who didn't was trampled. I mean, I think that's an extremely compelling way of explaining the emergence of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Why do we have an imagination? 
I mean, that's a kind of strange thing. Do you think lizards have an imagination? I mean, maybe, <laughs> but it seems kind of unlikely. Uh, we, It seems pretty clear to me that we have an imagination as a way of simulating scenarios without having to test them out. Yeah. Like you can imagine what would happen based on what you know, and that allows you to simulate something stupid that you might be about to do and then realize it's stupid and you shouldn't do it. But that that applies to waking imagination. So how do dreams change that? Yeah, I believe that's that's still an open question. But it's certainly yeah. one that is addressed in some of these models that we've looked at. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the in the episode where we talked about the usefulness or the potential usefulness of dreams, one idea is that the dreams uh, that dreams by sort of suppressing the part of your brain that censors thought allow you to explore much wilder types of imaginative scenarios, things that you would never go to in your waking life. And that might be useful as a way of sort of like increasing the mutation rate of thought experiments. Mm -hmm. You know, doing stuff that your normal waking brain would never bother to to try out, right? Yeah, exactly. Though I guess it's kind of – it ends up being becoming kind of complicated though when you have – when you seem to have some sort of simulation that is also just clothed in uh, sort of ridiculous and garbled dream imagery. Yeah, oh, and and unreality. I mean, yeah. that is a weird thing to think about dreams. I mean, if you're saying that the imagination is useful because it helps you simulate scenarios and and figure out what to do in the real world, why do we have dreams where we simulate scenarios that where say the laws of physics don't apply, like you can fly and stuff like yeah. that? There, there just seems like that might not be actually useful if you're trying to simulate stuff that could happen in your life. Well, unless it's more about sort of very basic synaptic connections, you know? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's like the idea of here, here's a game you're going to play, but the game is preparing you for some sort of combat uh, scenario, you mm-hmm. know, um, where, you know, the basic skills involved or perhaps some, you know, the neural connections involved uh, match up to the real life experience as well as the fantastic experience that you're actually uh, engaging in your mind during dreams. Yeah, I think you're somewhat right. I mean, I I wouldn't be, say I'm fully convinced by the model, but there's something to be said for the fact that dreams spur you to go to places with your brain that you wouldn't normally go to. And as such, they might often produce uh, imaginative scenarios that are not very useful to you, but occasionally produce some very valuable breakthrough. You know, they might be like higher risk, higher reward types of imagination use. Hmm. You know, I have to admit that I I don't think I've ever had a dream that I remember um, or a nightmare rather uh, in, in which something bad has happened to my son. The, the the only thing that comes to mind is I did have a dream once where I went to wake him up and like the next morning and he had, was a teenager. Oh, so, no. So, like, it's, like he'd, you know, grown up overnight, which is... That which is seems, something bad that happened to your son. <laughs> that counts. Well, it, but it, it, it also seems... It's like a very simplistic uh, dream uh, extension of the idea of like, oh, I don't want to miss, you know, my child growing up or, or oh, my child is not going to be, you know, this young uh, forever. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. It's almost like the dream is an internal poem that uses metaphors and imagery to to inspire you to behave in certain ways. Yeah, though it's often a very like stupid poem, yeah. <laughs> poorly <laughs> poorly constructed poem, but it's as still most resonant. poems are. Yeah, but you feel them. I mean, yeah. this is uh, again, I'm talking about you know, the general nature of dreams here that I think everyone can relate to. In mm-hmm. uh, for instance, the nightmare. Uh, how many times have you had a nightmare that was just 
absolutely just terrifying and you just woke up and, you know, maybe woke up screaming or woke up on the verge of tears or just racked with anxiety. And then when you try to explain it to, uh, you know, your significant other or, or someone else the, the, in the, the waking day, you just then realize how ridiculous it is, just how, yeah. you know, that all the, the, the fear that you experienced in the dream uh, is completely uh, absent when you just reduce it to a description of events. Well, you're much more emotionally vulnerable in dreams, aren't you? Yeah, and you're free from like the the, the logical constraints. Yeah. Like, Roger Rabbit isn't scary, and there's no reason he would be chasing me with a mallet. Uh, but within the confines of the nightmare, that doesn't matter. All that is uh-huh. all that is real is the the emotion and the experience. Also, I say that, but Roger Rabbit is kind of terrifying when you really think about it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. All right, this next one comes to us from Jessica. Jessica says, Hello, I just finished an older episode about laughing during horror movies, and I thought it was incredibly interesting, especially the science and research about laughing and smiling. There was one phenomenon I found myself pondering over and wanted to know more about. Why do people, I'm generalizing, but often men, like to tell other people, women, to smile more? This is something that comes up in culture a lot. I've read a lot about this. Um... Jessica writes, I'm a woman and I can't tell you how many times throughout my schooling, both high school and college, and even in the professional workplace, I get told I need to smile more by male colleagues or I'm told by female coworkers that I have the dreaded, quote, resting bitch face. Uh, I'm not trying to to put myself on a pedestal here, but I don't think I've ever asked anyone to smile uh, more, Not, not not out of any sense of nobility or anything, but just because I really don't want to see anyone's teeth. I, I just tell people to wipe that grin off their face. <laughs> I, I I just think I I don't want to look at anyone's like mouth bones. You know, it's uh, no matter how gorgeous uh, or ghastly uh, you know what you have there, um, you know, may happen to be. I I I just I I'm fine not seeing them. Never forget your teeth are outside bones. Yeah, I, I yeah I just I I don't necessarily need to see more of them. However much. Whatever dental display you're presenting mm-hmm. uh, currently is the appropriate dental display, <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you to give me more of it. I'm sorry. I'll try to smile less. No, no, no. You're, you're doing the right amount. But <laughs> it, it's it's one of those things where it's I, I'm not going to look at someone and say like, oh, well, you know, I like Joe, but I wish I could see more of the inside of his mouth. I wish I could see more of his teeth. You know, it's I don't know. Maybe I just I'm not a I, I, I don't worship the smile in the same way that. <laughs> That certainly American culture wants us to worship the smile, that sort of Tom Cruise Hollywood smile, you uh-huh. know, that's the, 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 the color of bleached bone. Yeah, it just looks like my soul is hungry. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on. So is it an aura of unfriendliness that turns people off, or is there another reason that people like those around them to be smiling all the time? Especially if smiling is usually a sign of humor or uncomfortableness, because I can tell you when someone tells me to smile, if ever I do, it's not a friendly one. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had come across any discussions of these situations in your research that could point me in the right direction for some further reading. I think that's a good question that might be something worth revisiting. I do wonder, and this is, again, this is without any research uh, at this point, but I wonder if there are any arguments to be made for the the human smile especially serving as some sort of reproductive signal of, you know, reproductive fitness to say, like, Look at my smile. My my teeth are healthy. Oh, I wonder. Therefore, yeah. I am a healthy mate. Though it probably, on top of that, you could make the argument that it then takes on all these various socioeconomic um, 
complications as well oh, yeah. in modern culture because the smile is is a way of saying, look how uh, abnormally white my teeth are. Look how abnormally straight my teeth are. Uh, clearly, I am someone of some uh, means and refinement. Right. I, I've paid doctors to make me this way. My soul is hungry. <laughs> but again, that's just off the top of my head. Uh, yeah. And another thing I know, I actually just saw a headline about this the other day, is um, the idea that smiling has different meanings in different cultures. Like there's this whole idea of the Russian smile, right? Does the Russian smile mean the same thing that the American smile does? Mm. Or do these expressions actually have different valences within the culture. Yeah, we'll have to – we may have to come back to this. I know yeah. we've we've recorded episodes in the past on the um, – you know, sort of the fake smile and how you can tell a fake smile from a real smile, that sort of thing. But yeah, uh, but yeah it's, it's such a it, – it's, it's such a, an important aspect of the human experience. Uh, it, it would it, – it could do with some revisiting. Yeah, but also, Jessica, allow us to be a voice of encouragement. Smile when you want to smile. Don't smile when you don't want to smile. Yeah, Don't absolutely. let anybody – Stretch your face unwillingly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my uh, – I may have mentioned before my, my wife is a photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of being a photographer, of course, is, you know, sometimes you're, you're asking people to do uh, different things with their face and their posture. Uh, my son uh, observes all of this and then when, when, when he is given a camera, he will do like the, the five or six-year-old version of it. So he'll point a camera at me and say, all right, stand, stand up a little bit. And then he'll say, "Okay, let me see your teeth. Show me, show me your teeth." <laughs> like it's a dentist, yeah, uh, getting out the drill. Yeah, and I'm like, "No, no, this this is enough. I'm not showing you any more teeth." All right, I have one here. This is coming to us from David, and this one uh, is one of a, a few different messages that came in uh, via the discussion module, uh-huh. which is uh, it's the stuff to blow your mind discussion module. It is our. Facebook group where you can uh, have conversations and discuss topics with other listeners uh, of the show and then also uh, sometimes with, with, uh, with, with Joe and me as well. And uh, anyway, David writes in and says, in the Finite and Infinite Games episode, there was a discussion of what happens in sports, in particular football, when they can't break a tie. I think that ended with us saying, now we know we're about to get a lot of listener mail where people explain the rules of football to us. And it didn't happen. Well, this was the only one. He started this one by saying, you knew this was coming. Uh-huh. I think that was the title of okay. his response. He says, uh, I am from Sydney, Australia, and our football or rugby league has had some really long games. In the 70s, there were two grand finals, final games to determine the champion that finished in a draw and the game was replayed. But the game I wanted you to know about was a second-grade grand final played before the main first-grade game a few years ago. They changed what happens in a draw. The teams played the whole 80 minutes and had a draw. The rule stated that they play five minutes extra time. Then if no one scored, uh, they change ends and play on until someone scores. The game went to the full five minutes uh, and then they played another 30 minutes until finally a team scored. That is 115 minutes in a game that has limited replacements and some struggle to play the full 80. It went so long that it interfered with the pregame concert entertainment for the main game. In theory, that game could have gone on forever but would always remain a finite game. Yes, it would. I know most will not know the sport of rugby league, but it is a physically demanding game with limited stoppages. It is played in Australia, New Zealand, and Britain with a new team in Canada and a test match soon to be played in Denver. That's probably about the sportsiest listener mail you're ever going to hear on here. <laughs> no, we might, we might re- receive some more. Okay. I know we have, we have uh, sports fans out there. 
Now, we're definitely going to record at least one other listener mail episode where the entire episode will just be people explaining the rules of football to us <laughs> after they hear it didn't happen from this one. But we'll leave that for another day. All right, we're going to take one last break, and then when we come back, more listener mail. All right, we're back. All right, what have we got, Robert? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, yeah, I have some more here. Uh, here's a, uh, another short message. This one comes to us uh, via the discussion module as well. Uh, Terrence writes in and says, The recent episode on quantum immortality reminded me of a couple of Larry Nevin short stories from the late 60s, early 70s, All the Myriad Ways and For a Foggy Night. The former concerns the psychological consequences of the proof of an infinitely branching multiverse, not good, (laughs) and the later the possibility of an inadvertent crossing over between them. So what are the consequences? Have you read these? I have not read these. Wow. I haven't read them either, so I, I don't know what to say about it, but uh, but appreciate the recommendation, Terrence. Yeah, there was a, some back and forth on the discussion module about this from, uh, you know, among individuals who have read uh, uh, these Larry Nevin short stories. But it does make me want to pick him up because he's a, he's very much an author that I've been aware of forever. I remember seeing his name when I would browse the science fiction section uh, at the, you know, the local bookstore as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for whatever reason, I just I never actually read any of his work. Okay. So let's say there were a way to prove the quantum multiverse, to prove that, uh, say, the mini worlds interpretation is the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. And that that actually does lead to, you know, every moment, all these infinitely branching multiverses that you're splitting off into in uncountable ways. How do you think that would change how you feel about life? Would it change anything? Well, I guess it depends on what you know. Like, how much do you know? Yeah. Like, do I just know that there is a parallel existence? Do I know what the what the differences are? In like the the most, uh, I guess, the closest multiverse? Uh, I mean, one version you can think of it is it might encourage people to think that their choices are meaningless because every choice they make in other worlds, they've made the opposite choice. Hmm. And so really what you are now is not the sum total of the choices you made from the available options, but you're just the version that made these particular choices and other versions of you have made different ones. But how's that different from a lot of what we suspect about the nature of our reality? You know, Hmm. questions of to what extent we have free will, to what extent we're just that we're essentially without choice anyway and we're just trapped on this uh, this rail. Well, I mean people uh, – so I think the scientific case for the basic view of determinism is pretty solid. There, there's no way you can coherently say like, yes, I'm freely making choices and I could have done otherwise. There's mm-hmm. no way you can prove that. But at the same time, we at least have the experience, the subjective experience of feeling like we are making free choices. So in a way, subjectively, it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like you can't prove that you could have done otherwise in some past scenario, but it feels like you could. And it almost seems like that's enough, right? Yeah, and I I tend to suspect that if we were aware of of the happenings in 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 another universe – uh, that's closely aligned with what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. I think we'd still be able to, to to hold on to that that feeling of of freedom and and and, and free will. Mm-hmm. That we still live our lives with that in mind. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, whether we could have done otherwise or not, you're now the person you are, and the person you are now is a result of choices you've made. So whether or not you could have done otherwise 
with the reality that we're faced with is that you're the version of you that made the choices you did. We don't know whether there are other versions of you that made different choices. Well, when I think about the multiverse approach, I tend to think, well, in, in most of those realities, I, I probably don't even exist. <laughs> uh, Earth doesn't even exist. Yeah. There, there's only a, a, a slim uh, uh, selection in which I'm a thing at all. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm probably doing pretty well uh, <laughs> compared to, to most of them. There are probably a lot of worse uh, realities out there for me. Uh, another weird thing – well, yeah, I mean another weird thing that brings up is though you are aware, say, if the many worlds interpretation is true and there are these branching multiverses every time there's decoherence, mm-hmm. um, what, what what does it mean to be you? Why are you this version of you? Why aren't you some other version of you? And are those other versions of you actually you or are they something else? They're you too. <laughs> but they're not the same you. Yeah, they're what many worlds proponents call the edge. Uh, well, it brings it's like the question: uh, if, if you're if you're asking, like, is that really if that's you, then is that you as well? This you in another multiverse. But then the same question can, can be asked uh, just along the the timeline. Mm-hmm. Well, how about how about the you that went in to have their wisdom teeth removed? How about the you uh, while you were uh, under uh, anesthesia? Mm-hmm. Was there a you at all during that uh, span of time? And then now there's this you that you are embodying now. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, does the universe, does the multiverse go on with or without you? I don't know. Okay, we got one more email on the Quantum Immortality episode. We actually got a lot on this uh, this episode. We don't have time to read them all, but... Here's one. This also came from Hind, uh, who got in touch with us about the alphabet and the goddess. But Hind writes, quote, listening to the quantum immortality episode right now, just wanted to point out a slight error that Joe mentions. Although the Copenhagen interpretation is the interpretation that's in the majority of physics textbooks, it is in fact not what the majority of physicists believe is the right interpretation. There is no majority, though the Copenhagen adherents are the largest faction uh, or the largest fraction. Many Worlds is not too far behind. Here's an article from Sean Carroll's blog about this. Also love the shout out to Teg Marks, Our Mathematical Universe, one of my favorite pop physics books. Um, So I don't remember saying that the majority of physicists believe that the Copenhagen interpretation is correct. I thought what I had said is that the majority of physicists had believed that. Uh, But if I did say that's what they believe now, I I accept that correction. It seems to be the most popular interpretation among physicists, but it's not the majority. It's it's the most popular minority. But what I definitely meant is that, you know, over uh, over the period of history where there have been interpretations of quantum mechanics, Copenhagen interpretation is what gets the most attention. And the difference, just as a quick refresher, is the Copenhagen interpretation says, you know, when you've got a quantum system in superposition, it's it's sitting there in superposition until interaction from the outside, quote, collapses the wave function. And then you've got a probability of that superposition going into one of its definite outcome states. So the classic example is uh, Schrodinger's cat. So you've got the cat in the box and you've got a quantum system in superposition and something causes it to go one way or the other. And the idea is that the cat in the box is still alive and dead at the same time until you open the box and interact with it to see what's going on. And then it just assumes one of those two states. Many worlds interpretation would say, both states are continuously correct, branching off into different universes that don't interact with each other. Yes, but merely by putting the cat in this specially prepared box, 
you created two, uh, like a branching yeah. uh, path. The wave function never collapses into one outcome or the other. They're just both equally real going off into different directions that can't interact with each other anymore. Yes. But Hind is correct that, uh, that the Copenhagen interpretation appears to have been losing ground. All right. Here's another uh, short uh, bit of feedback from the discussion module. And this comes from Peter who is a longtime listener uh, uh, of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and also a, a VR enthusiast. Uh, so uh, I'm always on the the lookout for, for Peter's feedback whenever we touch on VR. Mm-hmm. And he was responding to the submarine sleep episode. He says, uh, love the submarine sleep episode and great points about VR on subs. I'd also be surprised if they weren't already experimenting with this. It'll be better once the more mobile versions improve in quality, but I ad- ideally, you'd have at least three meters by three meters space for them to move around in. Ideally more, but this would give them a fair amount of virtual freedom to feel like they were in a totally different world for a part of the day. I do wonder, though, if there'd be a danger of feeling more claustrophobic if you had this sort of regular freedom. Yeah, that's a good question. Do you adapt to the claustrophobic environment so that it cuts down on your fear over time, you become desensitized to it? And it, like, if you get to look out windows or get to have a VR experience, going back to the sub is a more horrible thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great point. And also, I like his point that that uh, the virtual reality, we, we we sometimes, especially those of us who are not actively engaging with with current VR tech, we we kind of get that sci-fi vision in our head, where it's just somebody putting on a pair of magic goggles and then drooling for an hour. Uh, but there is a certain amount of physical space you need in order to then simulate greater physical space. Yeah. And uh, that becomes a question too. Like maybe maybe there's no room for that on the sub because you just install that Xerox machine. Yeah, yeah. Here's a question. What is the minimum space that you could have to put goggles on somebody and give them the illusion of absolute freedom of movement? Does it does that make sense? Like uh like so if you want people to be able to walk around in mm-hmm. a VR world, you could manipulate their walking right through the through the sensory feedback so that instead of walking in a straight line forever, you eventually get them to kind of turn when they think yeah. they're going straight. What's the minimum space to cause that to be convincing as infinite movement space? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like like Peter's saying it's three meters by three meters. That seems incredibly small. Surely yeah. that wouldn't work, would it? I don't it? know. Uh, I mean, I guess it also depends on like what version of the technology you're, you're imagining here. Is it essentially somebody still like setting at a on a stool or is there some sort of like a uh, – uh, if, if they're walking on some, some sort of a treadmill, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I don't know. It, 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 I think it depends on the rig too and just like what, what version of existing or future technology you're talking about. All right, this one comes to us from our listener, Andy. Robert and Joe, you asked in your quantum immortality episode whether anyone had entered an altered mental state after extensively restoring save states in video games. Ah. So this was your concept of saves coming. Right? Yes, right. yes. So you create these backup versions of the world you live in. Every time you mess up, you go back to the to the checkpoint and start over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Andy writes, I'm ashamed to admit that I once spent a riveting six hours save scumming very Mega Man titles. Uh, the classic. Mega Man's a great one. Uh, I then got into my car. Ooh, that, I wonder where this is going. I missed my exit and had a moment of confusion as I reached out for a redo mechanism. Oh, wow. 
Perhaps the oddest part of the experience was that I was seeking a mechanism outside my perceptual reality. It felt similar to how the world expands when you step back from an intense round of video gaming, becoming aware of the room around yourself. While it was not a full-blown out-of-body experience, it left me a bit disoriented. Needless to say, it didn't work, and I had to turn around at the next exit. Thanks for the many excellent episodes. I think stuff like this is really interesting. One thing Jaron Lanier talks about is how one of the most interesting things about virtual reality is that it can change not only your perception of the environment around you but change your perception of what your own body is. Mm. So like you can put somebody in a virtual reality simulation where they have a tail and they can do things to control their tail. And that very quickly people actually adapt to this and start to feel like, you know, the, the movement of the tail feels intuitive to them. They, they've got a prehensile tail they can move around and use. And the, the, the ways you could apply this can get weirder and weirder and it's fascinating that our brains are plastic in this way. They can adapt not only to changes in the environment but to changes in the physical makeup of the self. And I like the way this extends that principle not just to like having a different limb but to having different sort of metaphysical capabilities like restoring save states in time. It's weird that he incorporated that as a thing his body could do. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, update – essentially updated his body schema to represent this – this kind of virtual body. Yeah, and the thing that, that is, doesn't even have a physical manifestation. It would be like it would be like control over the metaphysical elements of the world itself through some kind of body action. Hmm. And a, a classic example I think of this, I've brought up on the podcast before, is when I've been in parts of my work where I've been using documents or uh, Excel sheets a lot or something like that. There have been times when I, in physical space, tried to control F. You know, like I <laughs> wanted to find something. I wanted a search function. But you, ha you it takes you a second to realize, like, uh, that doesn't exist in reality. But I thought my body could do it onto physical space. Huh. Fascinating. Um, I, I don't have any – I don't think I have anything directly to compare to that. Though on the, the video game front, I do remember when – you know, if anyone's familiar with uh, – what is it? Katamari Damase? Oh, where you're trying to – that's the game where you roll up the ball of yes, things? Yeah. yeah. I remember playing – like when that first came out, it was, uh, we, were, uh, we were all super into it and I was – my wife and, and I were playing it. And then I went to drive to work mm -hmm. and I didn't actively try and drive my car over things and, and roll them up into a ball. But there was like this weird feeling like I should be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, that thankfully quickly uh, vanished. Uh, but uh, – but yeah, it's interesting to think, especially as we get into in, into technologies that will enable us to mm -hmm. take on new forms, uh, certainly in the virtual realm. Um, you know, to what extent does it become too weird to come back to our own bodies? Too shocking, even. I mean, this makes it. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder if, like, is there anything we couldn't train ourselves to internalize mm -hmm. if things as weird and non-physical as say like a search function or like save scumming or you know restore states those things are nowhere to be found in the physical world but we can internalize them as something that I sh expect my body to be able to do where does it stop what else could you get your body to expect that it can do yeah the sky's the limit that's a homework assignment for you listeners. What sort of like metaphysical capabilities do you think you could 
train people to expect to be able to carry out just by running them through some virtual reality or video games or something, good or bad, obviously. Yeah, indeed. I, I like the idea of, of thinking about what are some of the beneficial ones. You yeah. Know, could you one day have a situation where here's a video game, you play it, and it's some in, in some way like enhancing your abilities to operate as a functional human in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about like self-editing technology, mm -hmm. technology that would give people more willpower. You know, we're, we're very, very impulse-driven. We're very driven by habit, by impulse, by sort of momentary desires that are in conflict with our long-term goals and desires. This mm -hmm. is why uh, social media apps are so addictive and stuff like that. They leverage our impulses against our long-term goals for our time use and stuff like that. Could you could you get people through some kind of VR video game training to sort of um, reprioritize, to like prioritize their long-term goals up higher in the chain of action? Hmm, I don't know. And then how would you how would you incorporate a, a first-person shooter <laughs> mechanism into this so that it would sell enough copies? Well, I don't know. I don't think it has to be a first-person shooter. I think it does. It looks like what most of the games are. Or nah. it needs to be um, it, it needs to be a sports game, one of the two. Or a Jedi game. You know, I, I gonna, I'm going to make a very weird prediction. I think someday we will move beyond the first-person shooter. People think that it, it's going to be what video games are forever. I think someday in the future, the first-person shooter will just be an obscure genre that was very popular in the past. It'll give way to the first-person stabber. <laughs> That'll be the primary <laughs> Uh, mode of interface there, huh? but no. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But it seems it it seems to be uh, stuck with us for now. All right, we have time for one last listener mail. This one comes to us from Hope. Hi, Robert and Joe. I just recently listened to your episode on Aphantasia and thoroughly enjoyed it. While I was looking more into Hyperphantasia, it came to my mind that I have very vivid dreams. My husband is stunned sometimes at how well I can recall events, colors, and physical sensations. I've always thought it was strange how when he has a dream, he can hardly seem to remember any of it, if any at all. I thought to myself, is that how differently our minds actually work, like the difference between aphantasia and hyperphantasia? My question to you is, would you consider doing an episode on vivid dreams and their causes, differences in individuals, etc.? I would love to hear what you could find out. Lastly, I want to thank you for making my work days go by so much quicker. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to work at a place uh, where I can listen to podcasts almost all day and I'm slowly working my way through the episodes. The best part is feeling like I've achieved something by learning about the different topics at the end of the day, you know, other than the confused looks my coworkers start giving me when I start ranting about things like P-zombies and bicameralism. <laughs> I wish you all the best. Yours, Hope. Uh, well, we're glad we can subjectively shorten the impression of the length of your life. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not how it works, is it? No, well, it's 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 an increase in quality, yeah. uh, even if it is, it seems to be a you know relatively a, a decrease in quantity. I think we talked about this. Uh, I think it might have been from the work of David Eagleman, where we talked about in the the time and the present moment episode. Yeah, uh, where it, it's it's counterintuitive, but if I'm remembering correctly, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. But basically, experiences that seem very long in the moment are actually compressed and shortened in memory, whereas experiences that go by very quickly in the moment are lengthened in memory. Mm, yeah. So that like you get a retrospective lengthening of the life by having things that, that you know, by having interesting, exciting experiences that go by very fast, even though it feels like it's happening faster in, while you're doing it. 
Now, on the topic of vivid dreams, certainly. I mean, dreams are a topic that I feel like we'll never exhaust on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We'll inevitably come back to dreaming and sleep in the future, nightmares and what have you. So that that would be an interesting angle to to take. You know, aside from some of these uh, sort of you know hyper state. You know, we've, we've discussed lucid dreaming before, but but on a you know much simpler question, you know, what is the difference between a vivid dreamer and say a more typical dreamer? Do you find that you have more vivid dreams when you are in a more emotionally vulnerable state? See, it's hard to say because I'll have vivid dreams that are so boring that I mm-hmm. forget them before I wake up, you know? Like and and then sometimes a dream isn't that vivid, but it had an amazing idea and there's some amazing bit uh, detail to its substance and that'll stick with me. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's uh it, it kind of comes back to that basic bit of dream journaling wisdom to write it down immediately after it happens. Yeah. And I almost never do that. So <laughs> it, it all becomes kind of uh, lost uh, in the shuffle, which I, I remind myself, I think it's supposed to do that. So, man, this has been an epic listener mail episode. Yeah, we've, we've, we've covered, uh, we've covered just about everything. Yeah. Let's see. We got some, some good criticisms of mm-hmm. Alphabet and the Goddess, some interesting tangents related to that. We got quantum immortality. We got, uh, nuclear submarines. God, we got all kinds of stuff. Reading suggestions, episode yeah. suggestions, and we definitely want to remind everybody that yeah, when when you when you come across uh, some topic that you would like for us to cover, uh, some angle on a past episode mm-hmm. that uh, that that we glossed over or missed, uh, uh, you know, whatever, do write into us. Uh, again, we don't always have time to to respond to you individually or to even feature them all on listener mail, uh, but we do read them all. Uh, so we are always open to feedback. Oh, it looks like Carney is getting an ELF signal from the surface saying oh. that we need to surface. There uh, there must be. we got to go to periscope depth. All right. Well, let's do it. Uh, in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast as well as links out to our various social media accounts. I'll remind everybody that the best way to, su- to support the show, which we provide to you uh, free of charge, is to go to wherever you obtain the podcast and rate and review us if at all possible. Huge thanks as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, maybe get uh, some listener mail featured on a future listener mail episode, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.